0: Hello everyone, Al here. Just a quick note before the episode starts. So, between the fact that the recording for the episode was longer than normal, probably because we were covering an annual instead of just a 20-page issue. annuals is double-sized, I believe. And also, just life in the last week or two, while I was trying to edit, got in the way a bit. Nothing huge, nothing horrible, thankfully. But just some days where I didn't get a chance to do anything. I just wasn't able to get the entire episode edited in time. So I was left of a choice. Do I push it back a week and then release it? Or, plan B. And I went with plan B, which is to split the episode in two. So this week you are getting episode 117A, which is the first half of our conversation about Avengers Annual 7, and the first half of everything else. Feedback, Friends and Enemies segment, etc. Next week, fingers crossed, Episode 117B will be out with the second half of everything. All right, just so you know. And enjoy the show. Hello, welcome back to Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano. And today we are up to the, well, one of the two big issues of the Bronze Age. Avengers Annual 7. We're getting near the end of Adam and Thanos' story. Basically, for about 15 years. So, to help me along with this, because, you know, there's Thanos in here. We, of course, have Brian. Hey, Brian. Hello, and um, well, we also have Adam Warlock. So guess who else we dragged in here? Hi, John.
1: I am the Magus. No, wait, I, I'm Adam Warlock right now. Uh, hi, everybody. <laughs> how's it going? <laughs> yeah, hello. So, yeah, uh, got both of them on. It's, so. it's 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 great. We haven't done this since Avengers Defenders War. That is, I
2: believe that's. Well, did we? Yeah. Was that before or after we did the uh, Ages? Special Ages retrospective. Oh, the thing Ages. You do? that we did.
1: I think that was after, I think Avengers defenders war was earlier. And then yeah. that was later. Yes. Yeah. No, ages. Uh, the
0: age, comic ages. I was living here in Florida. Avengers defenders war. I was still in Jersey. Okay.
2: So that was a
1: good conversation.
2: That was, those, they were both excellent conversations. I had a great time with both of them. So this is going to be some fun y'all.
1: The thing I liked about that conversation is that, um, I was used to thinking about uh, ages as far as like, you know, certain criteria and, Not that other people had different values for that criteria, but the other people came at it from completely different criteria perspectives. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. And that was was just really, really neat.
0: And this is a great segue. I can't believe you guys brought that up. That's perfect because that feed is gone. But in a few episodes, I am planning, I'm actually uh, collecting all the uh, talk we had about the comic ages into two episodes. So it's going to be on this feed very soon in a few episodes. Sweet. So, wow. Good good job guys. So, yeah. So what they're talking about is on my uh, pop culture pals presents feed, which lasted for a little while. uh, I had John, Brian and Blaine Dowler on talking about the different comic ages golden, you know, what makes each age, what we felt was the criteria for those ages, et cetera, et cetera. And I released that as basically five or six episodes. Well, I'm going to condense those down to two, and they're going to be on this feed in about two or three episodes. Cool. Because I really like that conversation, so I want—I did not want that to go away. And I didn't even tell them about this beforehand or, you know, ask them to do this as a segue, so that's awesome. I'll accept my uh, money in an unmarked
2: envelope under the table now, Al. Um, so...
1: If you could just take the energy of all six Infinity Gems and put it into one big green gem, that um, I, w- I would like to accept that so I can blast it with a repulsor.
2: Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ooh, so, some foreshadowing. Some foreshadowing there. John Wilson employing Chekhov's comic book reference. <laughs> <laughs> Chekhov's
0: gem. <laughs> no, that's fine. Money's in, money's in the mail. Um, send all, rec- all issues of money and payment to uh, Ryan Daly. He takes care of that. Oh, okay. That's good. That, that, that helps. He has nothing else to do with his time. Just a toddler. Why not? <laughs> but anyway, enough of that. We are here to talk about Avengers Annual 7. So I probably should... Um, oh, now. So this is... Before we get to the synopsis. So this is Jim Starling coming back to Marvel.
2: Yes, the, the backstory... The real-life backstory of this issue is actually pretty interesting.
0: He had left around the time of Warlock, after Warlock 15, which was the end of the Warlock series. And I'm um, not, not by, like, not planned to be. Yeah, it, depending on how you're looking at it, it could have ended because of he left Marvel and or because of the uh, paper shortage Marvel is having. <laughs> I'm thinking a little bit of both.
2: Is that the story, is that the story they're, go, they're going with?
0: Some stuff I read in a few places. Okay. Not just from them, from Back Issue and a few other places, so... I'm wondering if it was kind of a combination of both. I mean, Warlock was selling, but probably if it was a weird enough title that maybe if Starlin wasn't there, it's like, all right, we got to cancel something anyway.
3: Well,
2: according to uh, it also uh, um, bears uh, pointing out that I'm actually reading uh, this annual out of the Warlock Masterworks Volume 2 collection which collects the entire Jim Starlin Warlock run including what is it a uh, uh, strange tales
0: uh, yeah one to to 181 the Starlin
2: Warlock and, and plus the Marvel team up and then the two annuals that finished it all off and there's an introduction by John B Cook the editor of Comic Book Artist Magazine in which he quotes a lot of interviews that Starlin gave then and now or not then and now, I should say, but then in like by 2017, when this collection was assembled and uh, and released, uh, he also mentions a few emails that I'm guessing maybe he personally exchanged with Starlin. Oh, okay. and and in the, the 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 sum total of the story that John B. Cook gives in the introduction to the Warlock Masterworks Volume Two collection is basically that it, it ended because uh, Jer, uh, during Jerry Conway's like very brief stint as editor-in-chief of marvel comics basically he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way and apparently no one more so than starlin so basically it didn't take long for starlin to just get so irritated that he up and uh quit
1: that's the impression i had from marvel the untold story
2: I I should have gone back and reviewed the relevant portions of that book before this episode, but it did not occur to me. So, thank you for having that information in your head,
1: John. (laughs) And I I, just—it's—it's a vague memory, but what you say, you know, goes along with what I remember of that.
2: Mm Hmm. Yeah. Here we go. Um, What happened to Warlock sixteen? And Starlin says, "Well, I had the pencils with me when I came back." No, no, they're talking to Steve Leloa. Edit all this out. I am absolutely zooming around four pages of text here and finding <laughs> and not finding the relevant uh, bits that I that I wanted to here. But we can uh, we. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Starlin quit Warlock. Uh, he says um, he told comic book artist magazine. Hey, which John B. Cook, the reporting this happens to be the editor of. Um, oh, convenient. He, so quote from Jim Starlin. I began to get a lot of interference on it, he says. I think the final straw was when I got was I got a lot of real stupid suggestions. Jerry Conway, during his two weeks reign as Marvel editor in chief, gave both Steve Englehart and me lists of things that he thought our books should do, and we both quit over it. Ah, so that's what he told comic book artists in an interview. You can take that as one side of the story and accept it as truthful as you as you wish.
0: Well, that's kind of like why I went with both. I kind of figured he was, I kind of had an idea from what I read that he quit, Mm -hmm. but I'm wondering if the cancellation was a combination of him quitting and needing to cancel books anyway. So, well, he quit, so no one's going to complain if we cancel the book. The guy's gone. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: You know, he's not going to complain that we're taking money away from him if uh, he's not here taking it anyway. Right. So, like I said, a little bit of A, a little bit of B. Exactly. Would it be canceled if he had left? I don't know.
2: Well there was a warlock number 16 that they had done as a filler issue that had never gotten that they never needed and that never actually turned up turned out to be released but the but Steve Leloa had done the pencils for did had completed the pencils for that uh, issue uh, before the whole thing went uh, tits up.
0: Is that in the um, masterwork? Uh, the, the, I believe actually
2: I have to look into that. Um, I have it, uh, right now I have it bookmarked to the, uh, Avengers annual that we need to be talking about and I am reading it digitally. So I don't want to go too far afield for fear of costing us time as I go zooming around this 300 odd page collection looking for stuff, but they do at least mention the existence of that
0: unreleased number 16. I did not know about that. I'll have to check for that later then. So that's good. I didn't know fully that information, so that's great. That helps a lot. hmm And now I have the article from Back Issue, the one we talked about used, John, when we did the 14 and 15. Right. So there's some stuff about how he came back to do these two annuals. Yeah. So I'm gonna read directly from the issue, from the article. If anyone else wants to see it, it's back issue issue thirty-four. The article's written by um Oh god, I had her name here a minute ago. <laughs> I want to say Karen, I want to say Karen Burke, Karen Walker. I see Karen in comics and I keep wanting to go Karen Berger, but I know mm. it wasn't Karen Berger.
2: Yeah. I don't know that she was writing for back page very much. <laughs>
0: yeah. Ultimately, Starling would seemingly finish off Warlock Saga a short time later. It would conclude in two annuals, Avengers Annual 7 and Marvel 2-in-1 Annual 2, both published in the summer of 1972. How did this unusual arrangement occur? Quote from Jim Starlin. Archie Goodwin was the editor at that point, and I had just finished working at at Ralph Bashke's out in California. I'd come back to New York, and I don't remember where I ran into Archie, but he said, hey, how would you like to do a book while you're in town here? And I said, what do you got? And he said, whatever. Avengers Annual is the first one I think I did. I said, okay, sure, and went home and started doing the Warlock story. I figured it was as good a time as any to finish off a few things I had in mind there. And I got done with that, and they said, gee, this is really nice. How would you like to do two-in-one annual, too? So I had a few things left over, and it really was as informal as that.
1: (laughs) Not as exciting a story.
0: (laughs) Basically, it's, you want to do a book? Sure, why not?
1: Sometimes you just have nothing better to do than to make money making comic books. Oh, what a life. Must
2: be friggin' nice.
1: So... I was reading this and it really is like that. that story goes along with it. Cause as we're going to talk about, this is the end of the Adam Warlock story. It is not the end of the Thanos story. So, no. I mean you, it, as an Adam Warlock follower, you could leave off here. I mean, it,
2: Avengers annual number seven, you mean?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Go Cause I mean, it
0: theoretically wrong. it could just end here. Thanos is, could just come back another day. Right. Right as opposed to right away, which was what happens in the Marvel two on one. So it, it, I mean, it could work on its own or as part one of two, which is kind of cool. Yes. But mm-hmm. before we get further, let's throw in the synopsis and then we can get into the issue. Avengers annual seven writer, Jim Starlin art breakdowns by Jim Starlin and finished art by Joe Rubinstein, colors, Petra Goldberg letters, Tom Warschowski, editor, Archie Goodwin, cover art, Jim Starlin and John Costanza, cover price, 60 cents, cover dated, 1977, on sale date, August 3rd, 1977. You can find this reprinted in Strange Adventures number 61, which was a 1979 French reprint, annual 80 number 2, which was a 1979 Spanish reprint, Warlock number 5, a 1982 reprint miniseries. Strange Special Origins Number 244, a 1990 French reprint. Warlock No. 5, a 1992 reprint of the 1982 reprint miniseries. <laughs> the Greatest Battles of the Avengers, a 1993 trade. Marvel Masterworks Warlock Vol. 2 from 2009. Essential Avengers Volume 8 from 2012. Essential Warlock Volume 1 from 2012. Next week when we do Episode 117b, I will do the remainder of the reprints. And just so you know, I'm only going to be doing the synopsis for the first several pages, which is what we covered this episode. The remainder of it will be next week. Our story starts in a barren, ruined world, and Adam Warlock. There he finds one of his few friends, Gamora, killed by the Master, because she opposed his plans for stellar genocide. Revealing to Adam that the one person the Master fears is him, she dies. Adam takes her soul into his soul gem, promising she will be there with him when the time comes and he takes off into space. Our scene shifts to Earth, Avengers Mansion, and on this dark and stormy night, the Avengers are in attendance. Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, the Scarlet Witch, Vision, and the Beast. Some of them, like Iron Man, don't even know why they are there that night. He just knows he must be there. He's given an answer, sort of. You were meant to be here this night, just as we are by the now arriving Moon Dragon and Captain Marvel. She explains further that both her and Marvel have strong premonitions that they will be needed that night, and speculates that it also applies to Thor and Iron Man, since neither of the two would normally be there right now. Meanwhile, out in space, we see a spacecraft approach a star and shoot a beam at it. Then the star goes Nova. Back on Earth, Moondragon can hear the psychic screams of all those beings who just died with the explosion of their sun. The beast doesn't seem to take any of this talk about premonitions and psychic screams seriously, but his glib demeanor is broken by the surprising arrival of Adam Warlock. He brings to them the name of this monster they must face.
3: Thanos. Hi, I'm John Wilson, and I'm Michael Kaiser,
1: and we're the hosts of the podcast Make Ours Marvel. You know, here we are in 2018, 10 years into the Marvel Cinematic Universe.
3: Yeah. Can you believe we live in a world where everyone's old Aunt Petunia knows who Iron Man is? It's crazy, right? So, to celebrate, we're on our mission to explore the roots of the Marvel Universe. You know you've thought about it. Some of you may have even done it. And now we're going to do it, too. We're diving back into the long boxes of Marvel's history and podcasting our way through the whole universe. All of it. Every superhero
1: issue, and if I can convince Mike, we'll even do sergeant Fury.
3: And it's not going to be one issue per episode. That'd take forever.
1: <laughs> it's still going to take
3: forever. But no, we're going to talk about as many comics as we can in an hour. Yep, an hour, and you know, maybe a little change. Every week, Marvel Comics. So it'd be super cool if you came along for the ride. Look for us every Friday at MakeOursMarvel.com. That's MakeOursMarvel.com. Or on iTunes and all the other usual podcasty places. And if you want to read along with us and send us your thoughts, we might even read emails. So until
1: Avengers: Infinity War gets a spin-off Warlock and the Infinity Watch TV show, make, make ours, ours Marvel.
0: Marvel. All right, let's get into the issue.
1: <laughs> wow, that was that was a big one, Al. I know. I appreciate you t- taking the bullet for that. <sighs>
0: Better <laughs> you than us, buddy. You got to do what you got to do, <laughs> and my stupid tablet decided to close off right then.
2: Well, I'll 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 share my first observation on the cover of Avengers Annual number seven is that it's a little bit. If you've been following the Starlin verse, the various bits of the uh, uh, Jim Starlin's specific corner of the Marvel universe since its inception in Iron Man fifty five or even if you had been with it uh, uh, long enough to remember the Captain Marvel stuff, hmm, that that several excellent episodes of Revelations and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast had been done on the Jim Starlin Captain Marvel series, um, yeah, not at all shameless self-promotion there. Uh, when you look at the cover of Avengers Annual Seven and you see the floating disembodied head of Thanos. There in the um, the floating disembodied head of Thanos in the in the star field, it very much harkens back to his to his failed his first failed attempt at godhood.
0: Oh, with and, the cosmic cube, yeah,
2: yeah, with the cosmic cube, and if I and he has another go at well, some sort of of you know high powered shenanigans in this annual. But if I'm recalling what I read uh, just a couple of days ago correctly, he doesn't go full god the way this uh, this um, cover would perhaps tease you into believing. So I'm not going to say it's a straight-up dishonest cover, but I do believe it's an interesting little bit of a misdirect, especially for those who were, uh, who were long-time enough readers
1: to recognize the imagery at play here.
0: No, he, uh, he's no godhood. He's going more for just straight-up genocide.
1: right. Yeah, Stellar Genocide is is like the Operation code name he's using. Um, I never really connected it back to that. I like that connection. I just, to me, this is the annual with the space background with Thanos' head floating and something else on the bottom. I always forget what. Um, (laughs) Because it's just a mass of color. It's a mass of gobbledygook. And honestly, I think it was literally seven seconds ago that I realized that Adam Warlock is on this cover.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah, he <laughs> took <laughs> me a while to find two. Yes, he's Waldo here.
1: Yeah, he is. And he's not even like doing that good a job hiding as Waldo. It's just I don't know. There's so much color down there that he doesn't that your eye goes there for some reason. But he's on the little mountain peak looking over everything with his cape billowing in the space wind. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah, no, because the main thing my eye goes to whenever the cover comes up is the Thor.
1: Because mm-hmm.
0: He's big on the color. He's like one of the biggest Avengers there. You see the most of him out of everybody. Everyone else is kind of, for the most part, covered up by these aliens they're fighting. You see more of Thor than pretty much anybody.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's 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 really a solid scrum of
0: combat.
1: Um, Every Avenger is on here that has a penis.
0: Yes, I did notice that, but I, was, yes. I didn't think about that when I was reading it before. There's no Moon Dragon and no Scarlet Witch.
1: Correct. Yeah. My girl's not even on this cover. It's kind of crazy. Um, it's also
0: weird. It's also weird considering what we're going to see on the inside. Starlin maybe is a bit rushed because they're all the same aliens, basically. They're all in uniform. Yeah, yeah. There's no bizarre have... crocodile with wings or an octopus of tentacle head. They
2: don't. And they're all like in the same like, yeah, sort of uh, medieval uh, foot soldier looking helmets and whatnot.
0: Yeah, it makes it look like more of an organized army than it really is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And also, and this is an interesting, okay, again, this is a a side effect of me reading this out of the digitally, out of the uh, digital version of the relatively recent Warlock Masterworks collection. So it's been completely cleaned up. Everything is really, like, sweetly digitized and all crisp and clean and bright. Uh, So I don't know if it was this way on the original printed cover back in 1977 but beast's eyes are red here which is kind of disturbing me yeah i'm curious if that's deliberate or like if it was a if it was something he did deliberately albeit by mistake if it was something he did deliberately for reasons we are unaware of or if it was a straight up coloring snafu
0: let me see if i can find a picture of the cover because i don't I, this is one of the di- few issues of this time that I don't have the actual copy of, so I'm reading it uh, on Marvel Unlimited. Mm-hmm. So and
2: so you too would be seeing the nice, crisp, digitally colored mm-hmm. yep. whatnot with the Beast's red eyes here.
0: But I'm trying to look it up real quick on my phone on Comic Book DB to see if they have a copy of maybe if the cover looks different, if it's the original cop cover oh, or, yes. or digital. Yes,
2: I too I too can maybe have a have a quick look see here. Yeah, they are the red
1: comics. on, on comics.org they have a scan of the cover and Beast got some red eyes down there.
0: That's where I was going to go and look. Yeah. All right, then I'll then I'll, I haven't got there yet, but I'll assume then that's the same thing here.
1: So I don't I don't especially love this cover. I mean I like the Thanos head, but like I said, once you get to the lower half to third of the cover, it's just a big old gobbledygook. There's there's no negative space to help define the action that's going on it's just a mass of bodies in a turmoil and maybe that's exactly what they were going for maybe they were looking for like some sort of overwhelming odds battle of the bastards kind of concept here um but i don't know it's just it's
0: oh i'm uh, thinking about that now sorry finish up
1: it's a whole bunch of nothing on the top with like a couple of highlights and a whole bunch of everything on the bottom
0: I, i'm thinking about it right now and I'm wondering if that's intentional. It's a whole bunch. All the Avengers and Captain Marvel are in the middle of, like you said, this big gobbledygook battle. But above, all we have are Thanos and Adam. Like, that's what's important. And the rest of it b- below is just this big gobbledygook thing.
1: So they're that's- standing above, like, gods or demigods watching the mortals pound it out.
0: Or more like, well, that too. That's another way to look at it, too, actually. Or more like, that's where the real battle is. That's the real important thing, is the Adam-Thanos Thing. The Avengers are just kind of there to uh, make that possible.
2: Yeah, I, I think, I think I'm sort of triangulating the the positions of the two of you. The important thing here, if you if you look at this cover, the point that Starlin uh, is clearly trying to make with this cover is that it might say the Avengers on it. It might be a king size annual with the Avengers in the title spot. But the important thing here is that. Thanos is in it, and Warlock, and Captain Marvel, but like prim- primarily Thanos and, and, and Warlock. Everybody else who's in it, I mean, think think of this, okay? It's 1977. You're trying the co- the cover is what sells the comic book. Is what you know you want to grab people's eyeballs while it's sitting there, you know, on the drugstore newsstand because this is definitely you know pre-specialty shop. Oh yeah. Um. So you you want it to leap off the cover. You want it. Uh, to to grab people enough for them to want to buy it and truthfully it, it, as far as the avengers go hey it's an avengers annual and the avengers are fighting people that really doesn't set it apart from any other um illustrated issue. magazine with the word avengers on the cover so for me like you know he's thinking you know what do i want people to notice about that's that's going to in, it, inspire their curiosity enough to plonk down the sixty cents for it. Um, that is going to be the big disembodied Thanos head, and if they notice and and the text saying Warlock and Captain Marvel are also in here, because I think I'm with you guys. I don't think they're specific. They're very much going to notice uh, Adam Warlock or Captain Marvel, you know, without spending a lot of time sort of staring at it.
4: Right.
0: Yeah, because going by what you're saying, then, when you said about the spinner rack, and I thought about that, so I carved up, like, the bottom half. So, really, what you're going to see is, like you said, if they notice it, Adam, mainly Thanos' head and maybe Thor's hammer. Right. So, I think, yeah, that's the thing that's kind of he's trying to use to grab people is, look, Thanos is here. You know, you know the Avengers are going to be in the annual anyway, so it really doesn't matter what they're doing. Exactly. I mean, that's just my theory.
1: Then it almost makes all the violence down there, like, strictly gratuitous. Like, they could be having a picnic and it wouldn't really matter, Um, but we know they're going to be battling. So just, okay, you know what? Let's just draw and fight and some stuff, and okay, and that's it.
2: It could also also be, because it was drawn by Starlin, and it could also be that if you are uh, going back to the backstory of the issue's existence that we referenced uh, earlier... This is very much Starlin closing out his story, and his story was always about Warlock and Thanos and Captain Marvel. Those are the main characters of the Starlin verse, And these issues were given to him by Archie Goodwin as a sort of, you know, hey, here's two big double-sized issues, they're annuals, finish your story, do this thing by two, I because I'm, I'm also referencing uh, the two-in-one annual that will come after this. But my point is that... So Starlin's doing his Starlin thing. Starlin's telling his Starlinverse story. This might be his sort of passive-aggressive way of saying, "Yeah, okay, um, you gave me the Avengers. I guess I'll put the Avengers in it. Here you go." <laughs> That's possible too. You know, so a little bit, of, a little bit of meta inside baseball there for you.
0: All right, so let's get into it. Since we spent enough time on the cover, yes. <laughs> we want to get through this whole issue, issue yes. one episode.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: Well, happily, the stuff there is to comment on decreases in frequency as the issue goes on, so.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, Yeah, true, because there's a lot of big fight scenes, so that helps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we start off with something I've I've been noticing them doing in the Avengers in, in the 70s a lot, like the Justice League, doing the little roll call on the side of the title page.
2: I was going to reference the Justice League and ask, at uh, they were doing this a lot at the time because when I do see the dis- the the floating head roll call, that to me always screams 1960s Justice League.
1: Oh yeah, and in fact, Are you I'm asking going me if through... they were still doing it or if they.
2: Well, I didn't know if the Avengers had made a habit of this or if this was some sort of one-off pastiche or what.
0: They'd done this a couple times at least because um, when we get to the friends and enemies segment. I, did, I already recorded that and with uh, me and Sarah Century, and Avengers 148, oh wait, no, that's episode 100, never mind, forget what it <laughs> said.
1: <laughs> but it's still, it's still of the era, so are, are they doing it Avengers 148?
0: Yeah, Avengers 148, they did that there. Okay. okay. So they at least are doing it in the 70s, and I know the Just League had done it at least sometimes in the 70s, and I'm doing a, re- a read of the uh, original Just League series, I'm up to issue 22, and yeah. They're doing that in the early issues as well. So,
1: yeah, my memory of this, my Avengers read through this era is that it became quite a staple of the Avengers, but it had to have been at least tip of the hat to Justice League or inspired by because, um, you know, at this point, the Avengers kind of have they don't they don't necessarily have a steady roll call every time, especially this issue. They bring in some Avengers that aren't even in the regular monthlies on a regular basis. So.
0: Yeah, Moon Dragon's not a regular Avenger, and according to the context from what we're reading here, Iron Man and Thor are not regular Avengers either at this point.
1: Interesting.
2: I do. Is it just me, or is Captain America's head in the roll call looking a little John Bernie?
0: I can see that definitely. You yeah, know,
2: that's that's I just because I'm always like curious. Is like, is this stock quote unquote stock footage, or did Starlin add these himself, or or was that a sort of post production ad? Eh, just something I was a. Uh, <laughs> the things that wonder, the things that I wonder. Well,
0: uh, we know the main t- main page, main the main uh, image on the page was definitely not stock. That's definitely Jim Starlin's skyscraper behind him. Mm-hmm. Big old planets all over, lots of lines on them.
2: <laughs> A lovely sort of mashup of uh, the, the the planets are looking very sort of Ditko Doctor Strange, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and the, and then of course space is in in the Marvel universe space is made entirely up of Kirby crackle.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Kirby has, has fashioned the nebulas and everything of space. It's, <laughs> so It's pretty so great.
2: It's a lovely it's a lovely little sort of a ma- a mashup of classics here.
1: And it's interesting how all of the just like random arcs and geometry on a spherical object mm-hmm. can help give it shape. Because otherwise that would just be like a yellow mass mm-hmm. with a sort of, you know, floaty arc around it. It wouldn't really be that defined. But just those few arky lines, I was like, okay, this is a spherical body.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I guess he kn- he knows what he's doing more than we realize. <laughs> but yeah, so we have Adam brooding because that's what Adam does best.
2: Really brooding. I mean, like complete silhouette in front, just a touch of red uh, of the cape on the shoulder. That's a, that's a, it's a striking image.
0: No, I like it a lot. This is a beautiful page. This whole thing of Adam just standing there with the it just the the whole page gets the mood started. It's desolate. And it's you can destroyed.
2: Tell, yeah, you can tell there's destruction here from the, from the twisted remains of machinery or architecture, whatever we're looking at in the foreground of this, of this Vista.
0: Yeah, it's, I like that a
1: lot. Looking at the roll call, I just, we, we, we've kind of talked about a little bit before, but you know. Starlin kind of had his first big arc at Marvel with the Captain Marvel stuff and the Thanos War over there. So with him coming back to Marvel and tying up a lot of loose ends, it's pretty neat that he is once again returning or reviving, you know, his roots with the company. He went and got Captain Marvel out of out of the the, the toy box and said, you know, we're going to put him in the story. Adam Warlocks in the story, Thanos is in the story. Everything basically that I've done at Marvel is in this story. Iron that, Man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and Iron Man, because Iron Man is where he started that that saga.
0: And Iron Man plays a pretty decent role. Well, not... Yeah, he plays a decent enough role in the Captain Marvel issues. More than the other Avengers, at least. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: So, uh, uh, two two last quick observations about the uh, splash page here. Um, Number one, I really dig uh, the, the title, the way the title is rendered, with the letters actually as sort of cutouts, negative space through which you see the star field continuation of the star field. Uh, I think that is a really nice touch, very striking, and it scans even better here with the digitized cleanup. I don't know how well it would have uh, uh, read with the original um, page printing, you know, the the, the quality it's of a, that. It's the printing. kind of
1: thing you can imagine would be kind of muddy.
2: Right, but but here with the digital cleanup, it, it's, it's, it's a real striking, sharp uh, thing. And the other
1: thing I would just want to point out is this came out in
2: 1977, and the lettering's done by Tom Orzachowski. and my under, like if my memory uh, is 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 correct, uh, t- Orz had been already like had already established himself as the regular letterer on over on X Men uh, by this point by 1977, and he had already like sort of started to display that signature Tom Orzachowski lettering look. Uh, That we all got so used to through the 80s and 90s as, you know, he continued to be Claremont's personal letter or whatever. And the reason I bring it up is because the lettering in this issue really does not look like Tom Orzechowski lettering to me. And I'm just like, I'm wondering why that is, given that I was under the impression he'd already kind of established his style at this point
1: x-men's revival was still pretty new at this point we were in like just a little after 100 so they'd had maybe 12 issues i guess 12 issues out over two years because it was bi-monthly that's Um, true
2: that's true i forgot it was bi-monthly at that point
1: but he was also the letterer over on avengers the monthly book well not consistently but i do see a lot of Avengers issues in his credits listing here, and oh, okay.
0: Star Wars. And actually, I don't know if we I don't know if we have no, realized this or not at the time, Brian. He did issues twenty eight to thirty three of Captain Marvel.
2: Oh, did he now? Okay, so he he he'd been he'd been around this stuff for some time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm showing credits going as far back as let's see, August of nineteen seventy three, Tomb of Dracula number eleven. Oh.
1: It's possible that as a letterer, he sort of bends his style in different directions for different books. Okay. I mean, when you're a letterer, there, there's there's a certain amount of artistic you know, uh, representation there. Uh, making all of your books lettered to the same, I mean, certainly you could do that if you have sort of a, a, a standard style. But if he's tailoring his lettering looks to different books, I can see how that would make his job more interesting for him and certainly make the books look more interesting.
2: And especially also, back at this at this point in history before uh, lettering was largely computer controlled and people right. were still brushing ink lettering books.
0: Yeah, and at this point in the – because as I'm scrolling through the 80s, I'm seeing sometimes less of things, but especially in the 70s, I'm seeing like five, six, seven books a month. Oh, yeah. So he might at this point still be just workhorsing it.
2: And you would have to. I would imagine that lettering a comic book was not um, – Not terribly lucrative per issue. So, yeah, in order to make a living as a comic book letterer, I would imagine you would have to be uh, accepting rather a lot of assignments.
0: Yeah. So, possibly maybe later, maybe when X Men was really selling well, maybe if they were getting some kind of point system or something for it, maybe he was able to more spend time with it. Mm -hmm. Because now this is their big seller and you're doing a, you know, you're helping making it a big seller. So, here you go. Keep doing it. You know, don't worry about this other stuff. Someone else will do this. Other Someone else will do Pyro Man and Iron Fist. We're canceling that soon anyway. We don't care. Put more time and X-Men.
1: Yeah. So um, when we get over to the second page, I was thinking about how we had seen Gamora just a little bit in Warlock 15. You know, she flies away from Thanos, and Thanos is worried that she's maybe not necessarily going to be true to them. And she runs into Drax and we don't know anything that happens after that but somehow between then and now she's stranded dying on a planet maybe drax came after her maybe thanos came after drax maybe there was a big hullabaloo uh maybe Actually, thanos realized that what's up
0: they're going to answer that later really oh. yeah in, they, the, <laughs> in the next annual no this annual no they're not yeah well they they kind of tell you what happens Well, not really. They just say she gets away from Drax.
1: Okay, so she got away from Drax um, using three mice and a banana. Yes. Um, And then Thanos comes after her because he figures she's probably, you know, somehow he was hinting at it in Warlock 15 that he no longer fully trusted her. And so now he's come after her and left her for dead on a planet and Warlock has found her.
0: Yep. And she's like he is, this is almost like Gamora from the movie, from Infinity War. Her dialogue. is like like what she's saying, the way she's talking about him makes me think of, more so than anything else we've read, makes me think of Gamora from the Infinity War movies. Mm. You know, just talk about how he's crazy. He wants to kill everything. Mm-hmm. I see. I see, yeah. Because before that, we really had nothing like that in her dialogue. She was very loyal to him completely. The closest she got to being disloyal was, I'm bored was from Warlock 15, like you said, I'm bored and you're just tinkering with your stuff and I have nothing to do here. And he's like, go find out a Warlock and keep him out of trouble.
1: You're right. So this is the first place where she's actually gotten to say, I hate my father. Oh, that yeah. was more of a nebula voice than I get more of a voice. That
0: was a very nebula voice. Yeah, and he's not even considered father here yet. He's still just the master. Right. Right. I mean, it's very much almost like a... Uh, medieval thing where they take the you know the noble family takes in the child that is orphaned and they take him as their own and they raise him but still it's like you're not my kid you don't call me dad you call me lord you know does, don't forget your place
1: does comic book gamora ever take the habit of calling thanos by anything paternal
0: i don't recall if they do that later on it's been a while but i do recall at least in infinity watch they kind of do more indicative of more of a familial relationship than what they give you here, which is more of just master-servant. If if I'm
2: recalling um, some of the more recent Guardians of the Galaxy stuff, um, especially where I started to lose the thread of it uh, into the uh, early Jerry Duggan run, I believe that there was a pretty consistently acknowledged uh, paternal relationship there. I don't know like how how frequently she she called him father or anything like that, but I'm pretty sure that that underpinned most of her uh, interactions with him and most of her speech about him to others uh, around that time a few years ago.
1: But and just was- out of curious, was was that run after the first film came out?
2: Yeah, I believe so. Yes, no, it was definitely after the first run. So
1: that, that'd be the uh, the films coloring the comics. Okay. That that could that could very easily be, yeah. Yeah, I think we'll see more
0: when we get up to the Infinity Watch issues, mm-hmm. and we'll see how it's done then. Because I remember, like I said, I remember there was more of a familial relationship implied, but I don't I don't recall if the term father or daughter was ever used. Right. So we'll see.
2: Only other thing I wish to uh, remark upon regarding page two, and I'm going to uh, return to the other half of this thought on page three, but with page two, especially the bottom row, we're continuing that heavy shadows, a lot, of, a lot of a lot of black negative space, so to speak. But the way the facial expressions on Gamora and the use of the shadows and the inking on Warlock's face, as well, this entire page. Looks very Bernie Wrightson to me. Like it's reminding me of nothing so much as early '80s Swamp Thing, mm-hmm. art- artistically speaking, and that's just striking given the much um, more chunkier and and rougher stuff that Starlin had been involved with, at least back in the Captain Marvel stuff that I'd been doing with Al. And I'm going to chalk that up to the inking of Joe Rubenstein, who I have never seen him ink Starlin's pencils before. It's a very different style. And again, there's a uh, second half to that thought that I'll return to when we get to page three.
1: Whatever thing, the, the really, really bright picture of, of, of Adam? Yes, yes, the, just the fineness of the lines.
2: Again, I've been doing all the Captain Marvel stuff with Al for this podcast, and so all of my... Uh, exposure to Jim Starlin's artwork and Jim starlin's pencilling uh, has so far been what I would call relatively chunky relatively like strong strokes thick lines not a lot of fine lines or or delicate uh, shading and in the both the the Adam and Gomorrah scene on page two and the big crazy uh, warlock panel on page three uh, Three, I'm just very struck by all of those new features. It's still very recognizably Starlin's art, but they're, it's, it's a new flavor for his art
0: for my eyeballs. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I well, like that. was definitely an earlier Starlin we were reading, too.
1: True. I do like that, because it, it kind of shifts the entire tone of the story. Because like we were saying, he's Captain Pants. Yes. In the first, <laughs> you know, two and a half pages. And then he's like, you know, he has to take Gamora into the Soul Stone. We see him in that first panel. Bam, she's dead. He walks out and he's like, okay, this is it. It's time for the showdown. And even on the last panel, whenever it could return to a heavy shade because it's a smaller figure, it's not. And then we then, of course, turn into the uh, the Avengers so everything is fully lit.
2: Right, and that, that that is very cinematic. That is a lighting choice and that is cinematic thinking of the kind you weren't getting in every comic book or every Marvel comic book in 1977. So, you know, we've remarked upon it many times before you and me, Alan. I'm sure you've talked about it with John, too. But but Starlin Starlin's was, stuff was not like anybody else's stuff.
0: No, definitely not. But yeah, I like what you're saying there, because, yeah, you could see a film version of this with, like, the first these first few scenes almost all in shadow, and then when he gets... And then right before the title... Card comes up on the screen. You get this big, all of a sudden, in color, full view, full lighting of Adam, you know, declaring vengeance and flying off. Mm-hmm. But the rest of it's all shaded and shadowy, and you're, you know, you can't see everything fully. Um, okay, now like another
2: that. Uh, another thing that, that that I'm definitely strongly reminded of here, because in the the Gamora and uh, Gamora's death scene, uh, Gamora's glorious, uh, sold death. um whale here she says i uncovered stellar genocide he hates all life and then on page three in the big uh crazy adam warlock panel he refers to thanos as a herald of anti-life now where have we encountered that term anti-life uh before gentlemen
0: um in comics i don't know anti-life i never heard of that before never heard of that before right
2: now so again, I'm just going to return real quick back to the uh, introduction of the Warlock Masterworks uh, collection because again, he talks about uh, Starlin. By Starlin's own admission, he appropriated when he was creating this this initial Star, uh, Thanos and Captain Marvel story and all that. Uh, he did consciously appropriate bits of the Fourth World. Oh yeah. Um, he uh, he he was kind of basically. Decided to show Kirby how it was done or at least sort of do it right because let's face it, the fourth world was legendary and deservedly so, but it never really, it, it, was
1: Coalesced.
2: Never, it, it, it never really, yeah, it never really like put it all together for us. It, yeah, it waved in the direction of something awesome, but never fully got there. And I think Starlin was like, Good stuff, let me show you how it's done.
1: Yeah, let, let's let's take this. Um, what do you call it? a single coherent narrative thread. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's use that idea in our story. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Starlin did that. Um, Yeah. I just read through all that fourth world stuff just last year and, and there are definitely some great ideas there, but there's not really a story in that fourth world saga. There's not really a, we start here and there's an arc and we end here or even like a direction through all that of where they were going. It's just kind of like almost sitcom style storytelling where like the, the people of apocalypse is just like the constant background threat. Mm -hmm. And here's, here's the, here's this week's episode with, um, the, the Forager, he's, he's coming down. He's going to take care of Orion. How's that going to work out for you, kids? <laughs>
2: exactly, exactly. And I guess I'm, I, my, my point was just that here we are five years on, and the verse content has certainly taken on a life of its own, and yet he still will give us those sort of explicit callbacks.
0: Yeah, well, it's kind of like Starland with doing Cap Even though he did more than one series, he was in Captain Marvel and Warlock... He was doing pretty much one at a time Mm because he didn't start doing Warlock until after he was done with Captain Marvel. So like you said, he's almost like able to take what, you know, use some of Kirby's concepts and put it into a more narrative storytelling, beginning, middle, end, more or less. Mm -hmm. While Kirby was doing, I mean, when he did that, he had four series. So it's almost like he's creating a world. He's creating his own universe that happens to be inside the DC universe, but creating his own universe with this as the backdrop. Less of a, and less to be a narrative story, kind of like what John said. Like the whole background of apocalypse is the background of everything, and then each issue is here's you know Forager, here's uh, the Deep Six, here's Mantis.
2: And also to be uh, to be fair about uh, everything, Kirby's Fourth World experiment took place at a time when long form storytelling wasn't really done in comic books. I think the interestingly enough, if I recall what I had read correctly. Uh, the first successful or the first mainstream example of long form, especially long form cross title storytelling was the Avengers Defenders War, a story that we all know pretty well, I would say. And yep. the fourth word world all was done pretty much before that. So, it, you know, it is pretty much an open question. What would have happened had uh, Kirby attempted something like the fourth world from scratch? In the late '70s, as opposed to the early
0: '70s. Yeah, because even by the late '70s, early '80s, I forget exactly when DC was experimenting with that. Because I believe Batman and Detective were pretty much a week, uh, you know, a bi-weekly title. Yeah, you know, it went from yeah. Batman to Detective to Batman to Detective. It was the same story, just continuing on. So maybe if he had done Fourth World later on, maybe he could have just done two or three series and almost had it like be kind of like the Superman titles from the. Uh, late 80s early 90s we had the triangle numbering
2: or he would have at least felt more comfortable connecting the stories between the different titles more firmly instead of just having them all be separate things that all were drawing from the same unique
1: sandbox right because Kirby is still I mean having been drawing comics since you know 1938 or whatever it was um, he's still from the school of these things are completely disposable entertainment. Someone's yeah. going to grab an issue. You have no idea if they're going to grab any other issues. So telling a multi-chapter story. I mean, he did continued stories in Fantastic Four a lot. But right. that was weird and new and strange. And people complained.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'm reading through his demon run right now. I'm up to issue 12 of his run in the demon, which starts in 72. And there's a quite a few two, three-part stories. So... But that's again also him just doing one series, not four. Not four. And there's also the factor of the distribution at the time that even though you might go to the same newsstand every month, they might not get Avengers this month or X Men, even though they had it last month and next month.
1: So, next episode on the Resurrections, a uh, Dark Side and Fourth World podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it. <laughs>
2: A Dark Side in Orion podcast.
1: Right.
3: <laughs>
2: um, but, I mean, yeah, Thanos was pretty strongly modeled on Dark Side. So that was just a pretty explicit callback to that. And and I, I decided to take hold of the horns of that bull and lead us down an
0: entirely irrelevant side alley. That's fine. It's what yeah. I do. And also, what? remember, also a bit of the modeled on Metron, as we mentioned when we talked about Iron Man 55, because that's why Thanos is so thin. Hmm. Because mm-hmm. he's he's scrawny compared to the rest of his appearances. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he got that Bulkmaster stuff that Cartman took in those first few episodes of South Park. <laughs> beefed himself up a lot.
1: Beefcake, Well, once your woman rejects you, you can do one of two things. You can waste away or you can, you know, fight back and, and reclaim something about your life. You know, so he he he's he's lost his death, girl. And now he's going to go work out.
0: He clipped away for that article and he's going to kick sand in someone else's face. Right. So what you're
2: saying is that we're looking at Thanos's revenge body. Yes. <laughs> okay.
0: No, you know what that means? Flex Mentalo is another version of Thanos of a Dark Side. Mm-hmm. Oh dear God.
1: When it comes right down to it, so many bad guys are another version of Dark Side. Image imitates two things in the early '90s: X-Men and Fourth World, mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. But um. We get to the Avengers, and, of course, over on Make Ours Marvel, we're talking about early Avengers. And in early Avengers, nobody knows anybody. It's like beyond the walls of Avengers Mansion, you have your life, and I know nothing about it.
5: Mm -hmm.
1: And, you know, I'm kind of longing for that to be a different dynamic, although I know it's not going to happen. And, in fact, I was reading this. And it says, you know, we Avengers are pledged never to interfere with each other's personal affairs. Mm-hmm. And like, really? Still? Mm-hmm. Tony's not going to talk to you about what's going on? What, is... <sighs> what a way to run a, a superhero team.
2: Yeah, this is this is the Avengers are not yet their best Avengers. But I do love how domestic this introduction is. I mean, I do sort of have a stereotype in my head. I do tend to think of Starlin as working exclusively with these uh, Stentorian, Shakespearean, you know, distant gods and monsters, cosmic stories. So every time he gives us something. Um, earthy or domestic or basically down to earth and, and humble in his storytelling, it always it's always a pleasant surprise for me. So here we're, we the first thing we see here is after the after the stormy exterior of Avengers Mansion, uh, the first thing we see here is the Beast like drinking and telling body telling of his body exploits to an entirely inappropriately curious Captain America. Here. Yeah. That's that was and, weird to me. But my point is, is just this is just such a quiet, like sort of quote unquote evening at home for the Avengers, and not the sort of scene I w- I, I ever expect to see out of Starlin. And he does it more often than I realize, and it's always a surprise to me. Uh, you know, thi- sorry, go on, John.
1: I'm sorry, just real quick, zooming in on Cap's face. I don't think he's enjoying this story, <laughs> but yeah. he is asking, "What happened then?" I think he's, he's humoring... Polite. He, yeah, he's humoring Hank, B, Hank McCoy. <laughs>
0: okay, that's fair. But two things: one, John, I don't think this stays th- that that staying out each other's fair stays that way. Because I read recently, the last few months, the uh, Crease Scroll War, and there mm-hmm. are plenty of issues. Like it starts like there's two or three issues that start off with like Quicksilver, Vision, and Scarlet Witch like wearing regular clothes, hanging out, watching TV and stuff together, right. playing checkers or chess. So maybe it goes back and forth. Depending probably does. It. Probably
1: does. This could just be, you know, Starlin's perception of the Avengers coming out here.
0: That's also possible. And also, Brian, remember what you said about and you it's true. Starlin usually and I think excels more when he's doing these Shakespearean godlike characters. But also remember, I mean, now, granted, it won't be for a couple of years. This is the guy who is writing Batman during. Well, a, he's writing Batman, so you're not going to get that kind of story. But, you know, writing Batman during death of the family and stuff, death of death, right. sorry, death in the family, sorry, death in the family. I
2: forgot that he wrote that and he totally did. You are 100 percent correct.
0: And uh, Batman, the cult, which was a really good story, which I with Bernie with, by the way, with Bernie Wrightson on art. Yeah. No, it all speaking- comes back to Wrightson. Wait, wait, that's not right.
2: But speaking speaking of art and and copying people so now uh, the first panel on page five we were talking before you know he was uh, consciously aping both Ditko and Kirby earlier. I swear to God this this first panel on page five with the vision in the Scarlet Witch it looks like it was uh, it's by Neil Adams to me. that is that is such like a the angle and the cheekbones and it's just yeah it looks very yeah. Neil Adams to me.
1: Neil Adams loves his cheekbones. <laughs> yes, he does. Doesn't he, though? Ray al Ghul, I mean, you could cut diamonds on those things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, and Iron Man, they're, they're talking about, you know, we don't want to interfere. But what's going on? And I, I like that. Iron Man's like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know why. Oh. I want to go home, but I can't. <laughs>
2: two two other quick observations number 1 this reminds me of this was a lovely convention you're talking about the avengers and what they were like at this time and they were pledged to stay out of each other's affairs they didn't know each other's secret identities what i do love is that throughout the 1970s they had the habit of addressing each other as avenger like, excuse me avenger i don't mean true. to be to intrude and it's just it's so strange because that's i started i started reading the avengers for the first time in my life uh, the Roger Stern era of the, the, of the mid eighties that, that practice was way out the window by then. Everybody was all up in each other's lives at that point. And I was fine with that. I loved that Avengers period. So watching them all. So when I go back and I read the late sixties or uh, 1970s stuff, where so they're all like, you can say that again, Avenger. And I'm like, Oh Lord, that's just so weird to, to, to look at.
1: <laughs> it's like, it's like, like soldier or private or
2: I think that was exactly what it was supposed to be like. It was supposed to be like, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. Soldier straighten yeah. up and fly. Right. Soldier, you know, that sort of thing. Absolutely.
0: Oh, well, it's almost like them progressing towards getting to that point. Like in the very beginning, it's what do you say? Captain America? Cause that is your title. You know, I'm going to refer to you as the proper way. And now it's like, Hey Avenger. Cause we're all Avengers. And then eventually you get to, Hey, Steve,
2: That's absolutely true. The other quick observation I have here, because I was not reading any of this uh, late 70s stuff on the regular, I think the only late 70s stuff I ever read more than a couple of issues of was uh, Spider-Man, because, you know, I'm a Spider-Man guy. But my point is, I'm curious to know if Iron Man's uh, chest bolt nipples things here are a regular feature of his at that time, or if that's something Starlin added? No, they were there. Oh, okay.
0: I I read a few... I read a few Iron Man's for some of the Friends and Enemy segments, and there's once or twice where he like uses them almost. It's like, like oh, oh my God, you're tweaking your nipples. Stop it. Stop it, Tony. <laughs> okay.
1: I guess Just, we know what comics Batman was reading when he was a kid, huh?
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, um, or at least Joel Schumacher.
1: Not that so. we've had enough tangents yet, but y'all read the quote from George Clooney. He's like, I was wearing a Batman who has sculpted buttocks and nipples on his suit. Yes, he was gay.
0: I remember seeing that, yeah. I remember reading that somewhere.
1: Anyways, we can keep going. <laughs> but,
2: but, yeah. But so Cap and Moon Dragon show up, and that's great. I wonder when's the last time Moon Dragon was seen in uh, the Marvel universe? I I'll, I'll tell you in two ticks. Oh, someone's going to the cat to the uh, complete Marvel reading order. I suspect.
1: Um, I love that site. Chronology Project has is less image heavy, so it loads faster. Oh. there
0: you go. Now, but while John's looking at that. My first thought is, wow, great security system you got there, Avengers. People just fly right right in the windows. You have no clue what's happening until they say something.
2: Yeah, they just got snuck up on inside Avengers Mansion. You guys suck at this.
0: (laughs) Well, it reminds me of like early Legion of Superheroes where every other, like half the stories are about all the security details they have in in their clubhouse. And then the other half of the stories are about how, you know, somebody sneaks into the clubhouse. Right, no. It's know, like, um, you know, these things work great when you turn them on.
2: This is, this is a theme that back when I had my, um, uh, and, and, I, and I promise I'll try to keep this digression as short as possible. Um, back when uh, my last, the last podcast I had uh, regularly as a host was uh, the uh, Sergeant Fury podcast that I did uh, with Dion Baya. And one of the themes that we kept returning to over the issues of Sergeant Fury that we read for that um, was the fact that how struck we were by the fact this was not a military unit we were reading about. This was a teenage, you know, gang. This was this was a bunch of guys. This was not a bunch of soldiers, highly trained soldiers, going around in a in, in a jeep um, executing uh, uh, professionally planned missions against uh, an enemy. This was a bunch of teenagers roaming around in their jalopy, getting into fist fights with a rival gang that's what these stories boil down to. And I think yeah. even here throughout the 70s, you know, you, you're reading the Avengers and you're thinking to yourself, this, sh- given the technology and the experience and the supposed um, intelligence and uh, backgrounds on display in this group, you would expect them to behave much more professionally in terms of tactics and strategy and security and, and things like that. And yet... Time and again, they just come off very, very, very amateurish. And I think that's because at the end of the day, the stories are always crafted to make them relatable to the teenage audience. So they're always be making relatively immature mistakes just yeah, to keep
0: them relatable. That's very possible. And So um,
1: oh, Moondragon Drag- yes. Moon is in the middle of a 20-issue gulf. She was last in Avengers 151, which was at the end of a pretty steady involvement in the book. That came out June of 76. We were in August of 77. And she's going to be back in the book, beginning with issue 172, which is about six months away.
0: Okay. Interesting. Oh, that's Briefly. The, uh, yeah, because that's the uh, Korvac saga.
1: Right, and then she kind of goes away again after that. Because that has every Avenger.
2: Well, the last time I saw her was was the the thanos war with the avengers and the daredevil involvement side involvement as
0: well that's the last time i saw her so yeah and captain marvel would have been the last time we had her in here those issues
1: Mm -hmm. so that would would have been a good 20 issues before she left the book
0: uh yes 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 yeah because her avengers stuff was
2: after
1: that so i like the little um reaction series of panels on the, uh, I guess we're on fifth page by this point. Yeah. Know, my pages are not numbered, but um the one that uh, kind of goes across and has a star at the bottom. It's just kind of neat to see, you know, Starlin likes to do this, likes to, to do a whole bunch of little panels on a page yeah. and getting reaction shots is a, is a great way to just like see everybody and include them all in the story.
2: Starlin, as much as anyone else, I don't want to say more than anyone else because my reading is so of the, of this period of comic book history is relatively limited, but I do have to say, it seems to me given what uh, Stan and Jack were up to in the sixties and the ways that influenced guys, even their followers in the early seventies, Ramita and Kane and Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway. It seems to me that Starlin was really taking visual storytelling to hitherto unseen levels just in terms of using visuals to convey narrative information Mm -hmm. in ways in ways that it hadn't been before it before you were always so reliant on narration and dialogue and in many instances the illustrations were mere accompaniers to that the way you're what you're talking about john is the ways in which uh starlin just took that straight up visual storytelling to new levels
1: i just realized it's symmetrical look at those yeah. panels look at the orientations of the faces
0: oh wow you're totally right that's yeah. amazing yeah you got the two uh, vision and iron man are like almost two halves almost the same with beast and thor on the other end and then you have moon dragon and scarlet witch staring at different sides mm-hmm. and then cap and cap are facing the reader but you know facing and, on the, and on, on the
1: ends vision and beast are angled in the opposite directions
0: mm-hmm. i didn't know about Beast Angle, you're right yeah beautiful um, that, yeah, but what you're saying about John, uh, Brian, you're right. Because think of, I was thinking about when you said about using the art to tell a story more than just a narration. I'm thinking about the origin of Drax. Yeah, how that whole page was done, and then also when he does the origin of Moon Dragon. And as long as you read the art, read it using the art, you can go. That's the same or that's her father. Right, no. but it's never said, and she still doesn't know at this point. She does not know that Drax is her father. I don't think at this point but it's never said there outright but it's right there in that artwork very plainly that's the same you know the incident where her parents were killed is the same incident where Drax was killed and brought back as Drax
2: absolutely absolutely correct and i like I, like i'm just point and i'm just saying it's so cool like what john's pointing out there about not just the the super cool uh, symmetrical layout but just you I, one of the things i always found frustrating about going back and reading uh as good as Fantastic Four and Thor were in the nineteen sixties, there is not a single panel that does not have text of some kind.
1: So no much text. textless panels. And yes. Roy Thomas so. takes Stan Lee's idea and runs it up the thermometer.
0: <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So speak, speaking of these, by the way, because I'm I'm when I was reading this before, I'm looking at what, what he says about they have different you know, their reactions of confusion, amusement, wonder, even fear. And I'm looking at these and I'm just noticing for a few of these faces, the only one I can see that could maybe be fear is Captain America, which is kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, he was he I, he was the one I had pegged um, amusement on. Oh,
0: uh, so that works too. But I like how it's the two women, Moondragon and Scarlet Witch, are the most stoic. Like everyone else has all these emotions all over their faces, even the vision. And they're like, all right, I guess we got to work. Right.
1: That's because my girl has so much power, she doesn't know what to do with it, and she is ready for whatever comes.
0: But my favorite is Captain Marvell, Because after Moon Dragon's whole little speech and you know her little kind, con- you know hidden condescension in in her speeches, it looks like Marvel is just rolling his eyes at Moon Dragon. <laughs> like, oh God, why did I bring her? <laughs> I swear I cannot take her anywhere.
2: I apologize. On behalf
0: of her, I apologize. Because it's right there. It says, I'm sure you and Thor also, you know, when she says here at the top of the page, what Marvel means is that he, like myself, had a strong premonition that our powers might be needed here. I'm sure you and Thor also encountered this, but did not re- recognize it for what it was. I hate when she Moondragon explains.
1: You don't know how to Avenger. I know how to <laughs> Avenger. <laughs> I love Moondragon so
0: much. <laughs> She's like, I'm smarter than everybody. I have more power, better powers than everybody, and I'm damn it, I'm hotter than everybody. <laughs>
2: uh, she's not wrong. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so then in, we get. I'm sorry. Space blows up. Yes, and then and then we get big Herkin stellar death. That yeah. is that is a hell of a panel to give an entire page to, and you know, damn.
0: And kind of fun, that, funny that this comes out summer of 77. So he would not have probably been able to... I mean, I don't know how much contact he would have had with someone like Roy Thomas or something. But since he wasn't working for Marvel, we're going to assume no. So Star Wars would have just come out.
2: You so he anticipated me. Damn it.
0: He was working on this when Star Wars was about to come out and basically is doing a Star Wars story, probably without realizing it.
2: Well, not even because check this out, here was, I had almost the exact thought. So on the following page, Moondragon's reaction, as far as I'm concerned, Moondragon says that she felt a great disturbance in the force, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. And look yet, at, look, yeah. Look, and at that, look at her speech in the second panel on the following oh, page. Oh yeah, definitely.
0: And, and, yet, and so you and, think, and, it's
2: like, he wouldn't
0: know. He might well, not he even see it
2: yet. No, he might, and here's why, here's why. Because this came out... Now, I do not know what the time, production timelines were like at Marvel in 1977. So I don't know what the timing of writing, production, blah de blah de blah But this came out... This was released, play, put out on, on newsstands in August of 1977, as uh, John has already pointed out. Star oh. Wars Star Wars hit theaters on May 25th, 1977. So there were at least... Two, two
1: to three months. It's just over two months because it's August 3rd. So I okay. think all the writing on this would had to have been done before that. But the novelization of Star Wars was out for Christmas. The ah, previous
2: yes. year. Oh, which, yeah. Yes. Which, uh, by the way, just an aside, I read that thing Like 800 million times when I was a teenager and I was, I was horrified to learn. I was only horrified to learn because you remember it was credited to George Lucas. And I'm like, damn, this guy knows how to write a novel. And only much later on did I find out it was entirely ghostwritten by Alan Dean
0: Foster.
1: And Alan Dean Foster can do some sci-fi. Oh boy. Can he?
0: It's possible. He had seen, knew about this. It's also possible. Maybe, maybe it's kind of like, I'm wondering if it's maybe kind of like a situation with doom patrol and X-Men when they first came out. Is there copying going on? Is there not? It's possible. It's also possible not. The novelization would not have been as big a bigger thing as the movie, at least not until after the movie came out. So it's kind
1: of funny because maybe the the X-Men story that eventually became um the big like what are they called? The the bird people? Shiar.
4: You yeah. know, the oh, showdown
1: yeah. with the Shiar and, and and you know the McCran crystal or whatever. By the time you get to the end of that saga, it is a very Star Wars flavored story, and it it came out well after Star Wars happened. But the beginning of that saga, because it was bimonthly and Claremont is so long, you know, form storytelling on that, Star Wars had never even heard of when Xavier started dreaming about Lalandra. So it just makes you kind of wonder, like, when ideas kind of come into people's heads and how they all, you know how it all works out that way. Cause you have this story that's not, that has nothing to do with star Wars, but by the end of it, it, it it's pretty star Wars.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes you think about things. Uh, at least the things I read in, uh, Alan Moore's Promethea, which he takes things. I think it's from young about like the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. And how like certain things come up at like certain times around, around other, you know, many people not copying each other just at the same time. No. I mean, to be fair, I don't know this fully. It's not like I read young. I read Alan Moore's Promethea comic, so take that as your will <laughs> Take my pieces of it, what you will.
1: I think Alan Moore is just trying to, to put off all the Man Thing comparisons that Swamp Thing was getting.
2: <laughs> Entirely possible. Can I just uh, uh, moving on slightly? Can I just tell you how much I enjoy the middle of this page where um, the beast the beast does this. I'm so brainy. I don't, you know, I don't believe any of this bull, blah bloody, blah de, blah Now, you know, Warlock is, was, at least when, uh, th- when Thomas and Kane turned him into Warlock, it was very explicitly a religious story, a Christ allegory, etc., etc., etc. And then, moving along with Starlin, um, through the Captain Marvel stuff, that was all heavily influenced by Buddhism, uh, we, we we knew this, and I have not read the Warlock stuff. You two are much more well-versed in that than me. But I'm going to presume that Starlin kept the um, cosmic sort of spiritual philosophizing going in those issues. Most well. definitely. So my point being is that
1: I absolutely
2: adore these middle three panels because you have Beast. I'm so brainy. You're all crazy. This couldn't possibly be true. And then... Um, You know, he's a A, we know, thanks to dramatic irony, that he's completely wrong. But B, then Warlock appears out of nowhere and he may as well. His first line of dialogue there may as well be as far as Starlin and the story and the audience are concerned, may as well be. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy, Horatio.
0: Actually, what I didn't think about it until you said that with the whole – reminding me about the whole, you know, religious overtones of a warlock. I kind of forgot about that for a few minutes. But the whole thing with Beast, it's almost like – more. actually, what I was expecting to say is, Beast, put your fingers in the holes in my hand. Prove to yourself, Thomas. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's very yeah. much a doubting Thomas, which works for that. On the other hand, it also doesn't work because it's like, let's see, which of the Avengers would have the most experience of psychic phenomenon and psychics knowing things randomly that no one should know? Well, definitely not the Beast, because he has no experience of, you know, mental professors or anything. The
2: dude is blue and furry. Really, we're going to be closed minded about things? But I just I just adore the way Starlin. i don't often oh, yeah. call out Starlin's dialogue, like, specifically his wordsmithing, because, you know, he's much better at plot than at dialogue, in my opinion. But this right here, I just—these two lines, just—I— adored them like i don't even have words for how much i adored them when the beast goes my isn't collective paranoia fun and warlock just pops in apparently it's not as amusing as blind cynicism me ow oh yeah so good and
1: and blind is a key point there because as like like al's right Maybe he doesn't understand how they know everything, but the fact that people could be hearing this is well within the realm of his experience. Mm-hmm. Did y'all notice Adam is skulking in the background of that left panel?
0: I was about to. I just saw that while
1: uh, Brian oh, was talking. Oh, I didn't so did notice I. that before just now. Good eye.
0: I didn't see that until just now too, and I was about to say that when when you finished talking, but you beat me to it. <laughs> I like he's like waiting for his moment. He's like not yet, not yet, now. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, I was about to say that too, Thor, go on.
1: Then Thor's like, him. And <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't have written it this way. He's like, or so thou didst call thyself when last we fought, as if Thor had some indication he called himself something different now. He shouldn't have any of that indication. But um it, it's neat to kind of connect the history back because I mean the last time that this guy had any connection with the regular Marvel universe at large. He was, you know, going around in red underpants, calling himself him, lusting after Thor's would be wife. Right. So, yes. um,
0: the only other time was at, uh, the Marvel two, Marvel team up issue with Spider Man, and that was yeah, just before and there, this.
1: And there aren't that many people at that one, so it's like, you know,
0: and that also wasn't Starlin.
1: Oh, yeah, it wasn't.
0: Yeah, that's Mantlo and I think John Byrne. Yep, John Byrne, Bill Mantlo and John Byrne.
1: All right, so I really like those last two panels I tweeted them out today because um, I feel like we have moment or moments like this in the Marvel Cinematic Universe where other people are talking about how he's you know a really bad adversary and we need help fighting Thanos. but we don't have it with Adam Warlock saying it and I just kind of wish as much as I love, as much as I really really love the MCU, I just kind of wish the shape of that universe allowed for Adam Warlock to be involved at this point. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. I agree.
1: I agree.
3: You are about to see the first
5: public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment.
4: You are about to see... You are about to see...
5: Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more, bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part
4: of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com.
0: It's now time for feedback, and then we're going to do the Friends and Enemies segment after this. Our feedback this time is for episode 114, in which we covered Warlock number 15. On Facebook, the post about the episode was liked and shared by Bill Baer, Jesse Starcher, Joe Sedano, Chris Matthews, Pat Sampson, Jason Venable, Hal Jordan, Source Material Comics Podcast, Mark Radulich, Mike Peacock, Gene Hendricks, Michael Lane, Clinton Robinson, Derek William Crabb, Tim Price, Martin Gray, and Chris Armstrong. We also have an email from Dave Spafford. came on June 5th of this year, entitled, Warlock 15 in the UK. Hi Al, quick note on where Warlock 15 was reprinted in the UK, it was spread across three issues of Star Wars Weekly, issues 74-76, to 76, 25th of July to the 8th of August, 1979. Interesting to note that Issue 74 covered the mini-story with the space reprocessors as a complete entity. Incidentally, I don't think Marvel Team-Up 55 was ever reprinted in Marvel UK. I can't believe you missed the obvious when you are talking about the Frightful 4 tryouts, and didn't mention that, after Captain Ultra flunked it, the successful applicant was the Brute. Looking forward to the next episode. Cheers, David. Alright, cool, so now we know what issues that was reprinted in. And, yeah, it makes sense, like I said... That episode, that little space repossession story was like its own story completely. So it made sense they reprinted it on its own. I didn't realize the Brute was the one who got into the Frightful Four that time. I know he was a Frightful Four member. I just didn't realize that's when he became a member. Interesting. Anyway, thank you, David. Always appreciate your emails. All right, so if you want to have your email or just your name read on the show, send an email, resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com. Go on Facebook or Twitter to like and share the posts about the episodes. On Facebook, just type in Adam Warlock or Thanos in the search box and we'll pop up. On Twitter, we are at Adam Thanos Pod. Go to our Tumblr page and follow posts on there. ResurrectionsAdamWarlock.tumblr.com Earlier in this episode, Brian, John, and I were talking about how I was going to be putting up the episodes talking about the different comic book ages, and I was going to be going up after this. Well, plans did change, and that has those episodes already went up last year. So if you missed them, go back and listen to Episodes 105, 107, and 108. And finally, if you want to hear more from me, go check out my other show that I'm on, O D Cast, covering the DC sci-fi series Legion. That's the acronym Legion, not Legion of Superheroes. Since last episode... We've had episodes 8 and 9, in which we covered Legion 89, number 7, and 8. Links for those will be in the show notes, or you can just go to the Legion of Substitute Podcasters page and find them there. And now it's time for our Friends and Enemies segment. And just in case this is either your first episode, or you got bonked in the head and therefore lost your memory, because that's how that works, in our Friends and Enemies segment, uh, as if you look back at our feed... Adam and Thanos have not been in their own series most of the time, so we are covering a lot of their issues. So what we do in the Friends and I segment is we take the cover date of the main issue we talked about in the first half of the show, and we see where all those comics are at the same time. The only slight difference this time is there is no cover date, because we're actually we're talking about an annual, and the annuals don't get month cover dates. They just get the year. But thanks to Mike'sAmazingWorld.com, we were able to find out when this issue actually did come out, which was august of 77 so these are the other issues that are on the stands that month actually but to keep me from just talking to myself and going slowly insane i have a guest with me today so with us the bill dozer for our
5: podcast the co-host of geek pod we have hugh allen hey hugh what's up um, not a whole lot, Al. I am just very happy to be here and happy to uh, finally get to talk to you. Uh, as we uh, discussed earlier, we haven't really spoken in person before, but it, it's like you're a character in my life, in the GeekPod <laughs> life. It's like, oh, Al did this, Al did that. Oh, I was Paul's always saying I was talking to Al the other day. So you're kind of like a background character, you know, in my life, but I've never actually spoken to you. It's really bizarre. So I'm like Norm's wife on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and
0: basically. Cheers. <laughs> that's exactly it I'm um, vera <laughs> or i guess the neighbor from home improvement no like that wasn't al that was the other guy
5: yeah and he actually talked to the, to the neighbor so he was hidden but he was he was kind of there
0: yeah he was there yeah vera is more appropriate <laughs>
5: i think so but yes
0: people on here would have heard your voice before because you were our narrator for our iron man hostess ad about what two episodes ago i think it was
5: uh, yeah, well, yeah, that's, I, I don't know when you released that exactly, but that seems about right. That was about, uh, three, four weeks ago, I think Yeah, that you so. told me it was done. You just, uh, you said that it was done, but it wasn't in the, you hadn't actually put it out yet. So I wasn't sure that it had gone out yet.
0: Yeah. I believe that was two episodes ago. Cause I have a new episode coming out. Well, at the time of this recording coming out on Sunday. So, and I believe this is the, that was the last episode, but yeah, no, that was fun. And thank you again for doing that. Cause that, that's it. That's fun. It's a lot of work, but it's fun.
5: Uh, you know, I was just happy to uh, uh, be able to uh, fire up the microphone and do something. I mean, we haven't, GeekPod hasn't really recorded since the pandemic began. Um, not sure why, but uh, we ha- aren't doing anything. So uh, it was just nice to get ba- back behind the mic again and, uh, you know, flex the vocal cords.
0: Yeah, it gets, you got to do a little something different. You got to act. Yeah, which is on fun. Geek Pod, on GeekPod, you're just
5: you. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, there there is a, a bit of acting involved. There, the character of, of Dr. Hugh is not, it's based on my character, but it's not entirely my, you know, who I am. Um, and I, a lot of people like to say, it's me, but kicked up. I mean, yeah, but there's a little bit more to it. There are things um, that, that are expected of me, like, like, I'm always expected to have every answer and to be the smartest guy there and all that kind of, you know, very brainy. And while I am yes. very smart and very brainy, I generally don't talk to my friends the way I talk to Paul, you know, in, in real life, uh, the same way I do on the podcast. Uh, and I kind of have to be prepared all the time for that kind of stuff. So, you know, if we're going to talk about something, I need to make sure I'm ready to a- answer or bull my way through just about any question I can think of. Well, someone's got to be prepared on the show. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh. somebody does. <laughs> Hi, Paul. <laughs> hey, he he will say it himself so and, and i didn't say it. he's gonna be mad at you so i don't care yeah there we go and i'm not there so that's fine with me well this works so you were officially the person who can like uh, put the digs in it paul uh and uh <laughs> not actually have any consequences that's 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 cool yeah it's your it's your superpower Woo-hoo. i am all fine with that all right so we are gonna be talking about stuff like i
0: said from august 77 so this is late in the bronze age so quick question before we start what familiarity do you have with bronze age marvel comics or now, bronze this, age comics at all
5: this is where dr hugh would have an excellent answer for you um i i don't so much uh i've read some bronze age books uh as a i mean this this book came out uh um, my gear you know it well actually no august 77 so i was about six months old at this point um So a lot of these comics, I did read them when I was really young. My cousins collected comics. I had older cousins, and that's how I got into comics. You know, They would have – I'd go to their house, they have a box of comics, and I'd read them. And it was all these types of things. So I mean I I read – I mean not full story arcs or or anything like that. It was just a mishmash of comic books. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't until – I was an adult and could start buying comics on my own that I actually got into the whole really following story arcs and and keeping track of things. So my, my bronze age is a mixture of a lot of stuff that I honestly don't even remember. I mean, sometimes I'll recognize a cover and then maybe a bit of the story will come back. But if you ask me right now to think of a single issue I read from this age off the top of my head, I couldn't do it.
0: Okay. Yeah. That sounds fair. And yeah, similar thing for me for starting off. Like I had, uh, relatives and people who gave me comics so i had like a smattering of things so in fact the only one of these i had read before was the marvel team-up issue spider-man and iron fist because i had the marvel tales reprint of it so i remember reading that one that was one of the earlier ones i read but all the rest of these books are brand new to me well at
5: least one of us did some preparation right
0: oh it's my show so i guess i figured i had to unfortunately (laughs) that's the problem so let's get started on this, and we are going to start with Avengers number 165, Hammer of Vengeance, by Jim Shooter, John Byrne, and Pablo Marcos, covered by George Perez and Mike Esposito. The Avengers are no match against Count Nefaria. The Count is dropping buildings, taking names, and becoming immortal. One thing you can say about this one, whether you're talking that the inside or outside, nice art. I mean, Perez and Byrne, can't get better back then.
5: Uh, it 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 looks great. Um, I, I'm assuming that the guy that looks like Count Dracula is Count Nefaria. Yes. Okay.
0: <laughs> you were not the first person to do that. Um, there's an there's an X Men show called Uncanny X Cast, and Count Nefaria has been on was a in the X Men once or twice, and he's become a kind of character on the show. But because the guy doing it forgot what Nefaria did, he just saw the picture. He's like, oh, he's a vampire, <laughs> so he plays him as a vampire, even though he's not.
5: Now, I am trying to figure out, uh, because we've got to, you know, he knocked the whole building over on us, we'll be crushed. I'm trying to figure out the perspective here. Where is this building dropping from? I mean, it, it kind of I mean, it, it kind of looks like he must have, like, picked it up and dropped it. So he didn't really knock the whole building over if he picked it up and dropped it. Is that what he does in the book? Because that's what it looks like.
0: Yeah, he kind of just knocks it. He's super strong. He's, it's almost like they're fighting Superman. Okay. And he's outpowering all of them. I mean... You know, the only ones who have even half a chance is Iron
5: Man and Wonder Man. Now, if he's outpowering them, why have I never heard of Count Nefaria?
0: He gets used occasionally, but not too often. And up until this point, he was uh, part of the Magia, which is basically Marvel's uh, version of the the Mafia. Uh, For whatever reason, whether it was legal or they were scared of being shot, they didn't use the Mafia. So, he had a couple... He's actually the person, uh, if you know about early X-Men... I mean, I don't mean early X-Men, like uh, the 60s. I mean, like, early, Chris course, Claremont X-Men. Where uh, Thunderbird gets killed on, like, their first mission. Okay. You ever heard about that? He's the one who killed Thunderbird. Okay. Right, uh, yeah, no, he tried to I, take I, over Norad.
5: No, I think my X-Men uh, knowledge begins... I want to say 90s, and it was after the Siege Perilous. I actually i was at a point where i'd finally found a store that sold comic books and like you know not not every store got every issue sometimes too it was a, it was a mess mm-hmm. so that's about the time i started reading when like the x-men were all scattered and you know wolverine was trying to find everybody uh yes, so I, i'm guessing I that. that yeah I, I, that was a really fun time to uh to read that book i've tried to go back to some of the other stuff um uh but uh, you know it was it was a great jumping on point. I don't know if they intended it like that, uh, but I do feel like I missed a lot of the earlier stuff. And it's tough to go back and read some of that earlier stuff after you've read the more modern stuff. I, I don't know if you find that, but I definitely do.
0: It, different eras require you kind of got to get to the mindset for that era. And sometimes they've required different methods of reading. Like I've got I've gotten to the point where I read stuff from all different eras including Golden Age, but like if I'm reading a Golden Age book, there's like eight stories in them and i found out the best way to read golden age is do one story a day or at a time not try and plow mm-hmm. through the whole thing and so it's sometimes for things like this like where it's an era more there's a lot more of show i mean, sorry there's a lot more of telling than just showing and telling gotcha you know everyone had to say something sometimes you would have like everyone had to have like a word balloon in the panel no matter what and they would say what they were doing so you kind of got to get to the mindset of it but yeah, that was uh, what I was talking about Thunderbird. That was like when, when uh, the X-Men were first brought back, when Wolverine and Storm and all of them first joined. Okay. Yeah, giant size X-Men number one. And then they started up the numbering of 94, and Thunderbird dies in 95. Okay. He did not last very long on the team. <laughs> but yeah, that's yeah, that's what Captain Nefaria is. Um, I don't know. I guess I'll find out if I have, depending when next the next time I do this, if I do have the next issue to find out how it ends. Because the issue ends with Thor showing up finally. Which means, wow. you know, hopefully he'll be able to kick the guy's ass.
5: Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that, that that was kind of the point. Yeah.
0: Because they're not really that powerful a team without, you know, minus Wonder Man.
5: I mean, who's the strongest guy? The Beast? Eh, well, Beast is pretty strong. Um, I, you know, it doesn't really matter, though, because comics writing doesn't always adhere to any specific logic. I mean, how many times have we seen a character who doesn't have literal superpowers take on somebody much bigger and somehow beat them? Um, I mean, think of all the uh, the enemies Hawkeye has defeated. You know, no, it's or, true. Yeah, that it, means- it's yeah, I mean, I mean, I think we kind of need to, you know, give a pass on Batman because you know he is kind of like a god um, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, but a lot of the other characters. Uh, it- yeah, I mean, you, just because people are getting their butts kicked, you know, one day they need Thor to save them, the next day they beat somebody, you know, who's more powerful than the guy the day before without any help. I, it's you, you just can't really think about that. You have to suspend yeah. disbelief. Yeah, it all depends on whose comic it is. Yeah, exactly. I think sometimes it's, it, it depends on who the writer's favorite character is.
0: Oh, that's very true. Uh, going back to the X Men thing, just because it pops my head a lot. When I first, because when I first started reading comics, actually, I found this book called The X-Men Companion. It was a two, it was like two volume actual book book. And it was all these interviews with all the creators had worked on the X-Men up until that point, which was like 83. Yeah. And there was a lot of stuff about how when the X-Men were first brought back and Dave Cochran was drawing it, Nightcrawler was his favorite character. So Nightcrawler got a lot of play in those early issues. And then John Byrne took over X-Men and he liked Wolverine. So now all of a sudden Nightcrawler is kind of like getting bumped in the head a lot, not doing much. But Wolverine is the getting a lot of play there because that was the character he liked to draw. <laughs> so, yeah, that is very true. It all depends on who they like.
5: All right. So Captain Marvel 53, The War of the Galaxies by Scott Edelman, Al Milgram, Terry Austin, Bob Wiecheck, and Jack Abel. Covered by Gil Kane and Frank Giacoya, baby? Yeah captain marvel forms a powerful alliance with black bolt on what seems to be a mission that will lead to sudden death
0: well isn't that all superhero things they can potentially lead to sudden death
5: <laughs> i i think you know that that is the the manufactured peril that we need to create drama yes yeah
0: <laughs> uh my experiments going out there worried about you know being attacked with teddy bears
5: so this is a, a very interesting um cover uh, i think um captain marvel is looks like he's ice skating that's an ice skating pose i've seen that in the <laughs> it does. oh my god you're right and uh, uh black bolt looks like you know he's doing a belly flop into the pool <laughs> they're
0: confused like is it winter or is it summer are we swimming or skating i'm not
5: sure which <laughs> or, or maybe that's like interpretive dance i'm not sure Maybe maybe
0: he's supposed to be over him. He's supposed to be holding him. It's doing the synchronized skating together.
5: Well, you know, it's just interesting because uh, I guess you know with covers it would draw people to actually buy a book. You know, a lot of the times, especially if they're not familiar with it. And uh, regardless of the content of the book, this this is a weird cover. I, I don't think that this would draw me to buy the book. Uh, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. There's no context. I mean, it's it's the two of them in very very strange poses, surrounded by fire and a planet in the background. It's um, almost like
0: they were drawn separately and just kind of stuck on there.
5: Yeah, yeah, it, it's if it was you know covered by committee. Yeah, well, Captain Marvel always had that issue with
0: the exception really of when jo- uh, Jim Starlin was bringing in Thanos and doing writing and drawing the book. the book always seemed to have be floundering. I mean it it was on uh, it lasted about ten years and yet only got to sixty two issues. okay. Because it kept getting kissed. It kept going on hiatus or getting cancelled and then brought back. You know, that happened a couple of times. And if you read those first... Because Jim Starlin comes on around issue 25. If you read the first 24 issues, they changed direction like four times. Sometimes within two or three issues, they changed the direction of the series. You know, they changed all premise because they really... They really, I mean, he's a classic character and a people, there's still a lot of people have affection for him, but I think most of the people have affection for him because of either the Jim Starlin story with Thanos or because of the graphic novel, Death of Captain Marvel, Mm. where he dies and it was done, you know, he dies of cancer and it's, it was done, I mean, it's done amazingly well. It was from when I read Starlin basically dealing with his father's death. Unfortunately, like I've read a lot of his, I've read most of the series and yeah, it kind of didn't really know what it was doing. Uh,
5: Marvel cosmic to me kind of, and and Paul would disagree with this, but every time I try to read Marvel cosmic, I feel like uh, it feels like they don't really know what they're doing. I mean, it's not, I mean, I'm a science fiction guy too. I love science fiction, but I I cannot get into any Marvel cosmic from any era because I I start reading it and it doesn't seem to have the same internal logic as their earth based stuff. Um, I don't know if, if that makes sense or not. Uh, no, I can understand what you're saying. Yeah, I just always feel like like, like what like what was it I was reading recently? Um, it was within the last few years. They had some crossover that went went cosmic with some stuff, and I'm just like, who are these people? Why are these people here? What is going on? Why is everybody acting? I have I've bought every single issue of this so far, and I have no idea what the hell is going on here.
0: How um, how long ago? Like in the last two or three years, or like the last yeah, or this, this two thing? or three years. Last so three probably years. Infinity Countdown or Infinity Wars.
5: Yeah, it would have. Yeah, it would, I think it was one of those. Um, yeah, yeah. It would, they were okay.
0: okay. I was gonna say they were okay. A better one to try would be Annihilation. I don't know if you read that one or
5: not. I, I don't think I have. No,
0: because Annihilation, for one thing, there's a very. It was a much more tightly plotted. Uh, Infinity Countdown, Infinity Wars was okay, but. There's some I mean, we're going to be covering Infinity Wars in this show in a couple months, and we did Infinity Countdown, but it was definitely like Infinity Countdown was a crossover just to lead up to the next crossover. Yeah. And, you know, they do a whole, um, like a Megalom thing, you know, in the Infinity Wars, and it's just, there's a lot of stuff you know they're doing just to sell, you know, extra miniseries. Mm. Annihilation seemed to be a lot more, it's almost like they, they weren't that big yet, so they could still get away with stuff. So it was a lot more tightly plotted and, like, setup. You know, so you there was like a definite through line of what was going on and there was a point and an intention. And I think it depends on like I said, on, on the era. When you have too many people doing it, it's kinda like, well what's going on here? But what's going on there? Why does this not work you know, this makes no sense as opposed yeah, to, you know, I, having one or two people in charge going, This is what we're doing.
5: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um it's a, lot of the, a lot of the crossovers suffer from the same thing. Um maybe it's just my perception that the ones that go cosmic suffer a bit more. Um, I also cringe whenever I see the Cree getting involved in something and I generally just don't want to read it because I don't care. Because <laughs> n- nothing's going to make sense. Um,
0: oh, well, then good thing you didn't read this issue because guess
5: what? I, I, I could tell, you know. I mean, It's, it's the Cree. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I understood the whole, um, you know, Professor Xavier um, connection there back in the X-Men. You know, I'm familiar with that and that was okay. But like after that, it seems like every time they pop up, I don't even know why. they're being used i mean maybe i'm missing issues or i'm missing backstory but i just never know what's going on
0: yeah and that's fine everyone has their own even if you like a type of story everyone has their own level of like i'm done with this thing or i'm not or this thing just doesn't grab me
5: yeah, And, you know, I mean, I guess it, maybe it, it's just a me thing because I kind of feel the same way uh, whenever uh, Paul tries to get me into Green Lantern. I love the character and I've read some of the uh, the really good classic stuff, you know, Parallax and all that. And it's really good. But regular monthly Green Lantern, it's kind of like I open a page. There's all these weird colored aliens. And um, I feel like I've, I've missed something and everything should have more impact. And, and it just doesn't.
0: Oh yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit lab wave, too, Green Lantern. That's mostly because I'm not a big fan of Hal Jordan. And since that's the one they want to they use a lot now, I'm not as interested. <laughs> Next up, we have Daredevil number 149, Cat's Paw, by Jim Shooter, Carmine Infantino, and Klaus Jansen. Covered by Ron Wilson and Frank Giacoya. Deathstalker has
5: created a new smasher, and his orders are to destroy Daredevil. I take it that's Smasher and and not like an old costume for a Shocker or something. I know. Or or an Electro. Actually looks like Electro. Oh, yeah. Electro as well. A little too uh, ripped to be Electro, though.
0: Yeah. No, he's very ripped. But
5: he's just a guy
0: that's being told, go kill Daredevil. And (laughs) that's it. That's his motivation. He's being paid to kill Daredevil.
5: Oh, and, and you know, this This is a, a perfect example of another thing that I don't like about this old age of comic books. The bad guy, he says something. First of all, I'm not a fan of speech bubbles on the cover at all, ever. There's there's just no reason for it. Um, but when the, the bad guy says something and then the hero, you know, dream on, mister. This is where Daredevil strikes back. That character would never say something so ridiculous. I mean, In maybe he would. Time? Yes. Yeah, maybe, but um, I mean, the character that I know, I mean... It, It's just, it's, it's cringe for me whenever I see something like this. Yeah.
0: You got to remember Daredevil at this point is still like two or three years away from Frank Miller. And that's Daredevil up until then, basically from what I could tell, and some of the stories were good, but basically was less powerful Spider-Man.
5: Was he, did he have the the same uh, habit of, uh, you know, quips, funny quips and comebacks and all that kind of stuff?
0: Yeah. He was just not as good Spider, you know, he was not as powerful Spider-Man basically. (laughs) <laughs> that's he funny. Yeah, they, I mean, they had more of a, I mean, probably wide at this point. I think Daredevil's still bi-monthly. There was a period where he wasn't doing that well. Daredevil, up until Frank Miller, was not the Daredevil that everyone thinks of.
5: Now, you know what's also interesting about this cover, since that's all I can really talk about? Um, we've got several different dating things going on. This This issue was actually dated November. Mm-hmm. It came out in August of that year um but the movie that those people are going in into the deep was released in june 1977 so you know i'm not sure if this is some kind of weird time warp uh, but (laughs) i find that interesting
0: well yeah it makes sense that's probably when it was being drawn would be june that makes sense because it came out in august so it probably was drawing about a month or two ahead of time and then because the whole point of the dates was the cover dates was that was when the newsstands knew to get rid of them
5: I didn't know that. I always wondered why the yeah, month was always so far off.
0: Yeah, that's why it was different. Was because it was saying whole bees and because this was at the point where because this is you know there was there were some direct market stores, but not a lot of them. Most people got their comics, Seven Elevens or newsstands if you were in a city or you know, quick you know whatever convenience store was by you or supermarket that still had a comics rack. <laughs> and so they were and they were allowed to. Uh, the reason sales were so high compared to direct market was because they were allowed to return unsold copies and that's why you would see sometimes comics in this era with the cover either ripped off or the top like the top part you know cut off of the of the cover because that's how you send them back you didn't actually have to send back the issue you just had to send back the cover or the top part and throw the throw the issue away of course Mm. a lot of places would just still sell them for cheaper cheaper than 35 cents for real yeah. But they would do that. But that's how they knew when to keep them. This, like, you keep this up until November, and then you get rid. You know, if you still have it, and then you can send them back. Mm. Deep. I looked it up goes go. Is the deep out this year? I'm like, oh yeah, it was. And it's kind of funny. He's talking about Daredevil Strikes Back. I'm like, wait, what year? Oh yeah, no, Empire came out in 1980. <laughs> this is actually the year Star Wars came out. Oh,
5: well. this yeah, is I want. Actually, kind of funny. Yeah, it is. I don't know that I've got much more to say about it though. No, I mean, if you want to talk, tell me about the story because I
0: the guy Kate chases Daredevil around. There actually was one or two good scenes where Daredevil's like, "This guy's just here to kill me. I don't have to fight him," and he leaves. <laughs> At one point, he beats them, and the cops are there, and Daredevil's like, eh. "I mean, I, I guess Daredevil didn't care about the fact of attempted murder. He's like, he really didn't really commit any other crime, so I'm out of here. Deuces. He just leaves. I did like that. You know, like he didn't stay around, try and stick around for the pointless, gratuitous fight. He's like." The guys just wants to hurt me. I don't need to stand here for this. I'm out of here.
5: <laughs> That's funny.
0: And then there's stuff with his girlfriend and how he put her, he got her father her father arrested, but now he realized her father was being controlled by the purple man and he can't tell her that, and she's starting to go crazy. So
5: it all like, sounds so dramatic. Oh, wait till you get to Iron Man. Oh boy. <laughs> oh. Fantastic Four, number 188, The Rampage of Reed Richards, by Len Wine, George Perez, and Joe Sinnott, who recently just passed away. That's very sad. Exactly, yes. The Molecule Man has taken over Mr. Fantastic's body, and Reed can only fight back with his mind. Is his psyche strong enough to prevent Molecule Man from destroying his teammates? All is revealed with a shocking twist. So do we have some M. Night Shyamalan stuff going on in this book?
0: no nah, it wasn't really a shocking twist oh. it was more like a oh really okay if you say so he gets defeated because he tries to use his power on them on the i think the invisible woman but because her costume is made of an unstable molecules it backfires on him
5: and that's how gets defeated oh, oh that's that's convenient yeah i'm like oh okay not very <sighs> shocking but okay I, I think a lot of the resolutions in these uh um this age ages books Well, actually even before that were awfully convenient you know it's uh what uh i know some people call you know deus ex machina or just a yeah uh, you know we all hate it when tv shows do that that's why they don't usually do that anymore it's like everything's leading toward one thing and then it doesn't make narrative sense the resolution yeah yeah
0: this one was like that it's not their best issue uh I am very amused by the image, and it's in the book too. It does happen of the building walking around like a monster.
5: I was going to say that there's a there's a walking building. There's Electro again, two issues in a row. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> they and, like it, that image, and it looks like uh, the thing is having a fight with a light pole.
0: Well, the Molecule Man basically can control any make anything do anything. Basically, he controls molecules, so that basically say, basically their way of saying he can do whatever he wants.
5: Well, you know, if that's that's at least a, a more realistic idea than, you know, a lot of, you know, villains or even heroes when they get their powers. You know, it's, they might have something similar, but they can only control one thing. It's like, I can tr- control all the molecules in any soda pop in the world. You know, it's always something really stupid and specific. Um, <laughs> this makes a little more sense. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, he, I mean, and it's he is incredibly powerful. I mean... They did show him as being pretty powerful back then. He's even more powerful later on. I know he's in Secret Wars and in Secret Wars 2, and he's basically considered almost godlike at that point because he could basically do whatever he wants. You know, if he wants to make your, the car into a DeLorean, it's a DeLorean. If he wants to make your building walk, the building
5: walks. Well, then, you know, really, the Fantastic Four should have just been demolished. They should not have been able to defeat somebody with that kind of power.
0: Yeah, like I said, it was only because he was in Reed Richards' body. He kept stopping him from actually hurting them. Ah. Uh...
5: Uh, oh, okay. That makes sense. All right. Because I was, I was wondering why, you know, he looked like, you know, Reed and then, uh, okay. I, I feel stupid now.
0: <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of evil Reed going on this year. Cause I mean, we have this issue with the molecule man possessing Reed's body. And uh, the last time we were doing, uh, doing the friends and Emmy segment from a few months ago, they were fighting the brute who is the Reed Richards from counter earth.
5: Oh, we've got one of those now too, don't we?
0: Uh, I think there's a counter Earth. There's always a counter Earth running around.
5: Uh, well, I I think the, bring uh,
0: the concept back. The uh,
5: the one from the Ultimate Universe. Um, I, I don't. Oh yes, the that's Emperor's right. Yeah, uh, yes. You mean the Maker? Yes. Yes, that's he's called, called he's maker. called the Maker now. Yeah.
0: Yes, you know you're right. Yeah, he's an evil one. But yeah, because Counter Earth is the is the planet that Mo- Adam Morlock's original series took place on. Uh-uh. Okay. They sent him over there so he could have his own planet without anyone else being on it. But they had a Reed Richards, and this Reed Richards. The whole premise was when they took the space flight up. When they came back, uh, the others either the others died, and Sue went to a coma, and Reed Richards basically is turns into the brute, which is basically their version of the Hulk, Mm. and he's kind of evil. So there's a lot of evil Reed Richards going on this year in 1977, and in you know 2020. Yeah, that's right. I forgot they did that with him with the Ultimate Reed Richards
5: yeah and and that you know that i think there's just generally a lot of evil reed richards because you know that reed is directly responsible for there being marvel zombies so i i just i don't think Re- reed richards reed richards is is not a good thing in any universe or any time
0: well it's i guess that's the i guess that's the thing but being too smart
5: <laughs> oh
4: Dr. Hugh, what's got you geeked? Well, Paul, I'm geeked because we are recording our very first promo for GeekPod. What's GeekPod? GeekPod is a eclectic celebration Nobody of all things No uses geek. the word
5: eclectic ever in real Seriously, life. You? Ever. <laughs> I mean,
4: you're just trying to sound smart. <laughs> go on, go on. It's a call to action to let your geek flag fly proudly. Say that three times fast. No. The guys share <laughs> their opinions, the guys being us, and unique perspectives on everything from comic books. The sports and anything in between. No topic is off limits. Come experience the show that's being called intelligently irreverent and good naturedly offensive.
5: Who says that? <laughs> Your mom. That's just me, man.
4: Just me. Geekpot. Each and every week. Each and every week? Okay. So <laughs> twice a month, maybe. Yeah, yeah. maybe. <laughs> when we can all show up. Come join in on the fun. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, Instagram. Facebook, Twitter, and more. That's geekpod.com, G33KPOD, that's That's G33KPOD.com.
0: That's all for this episode. Don't forget, we'll be back in a week with episode 117B, in which we finish off, well, everything. All right. Bye. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, is a fan-made production, and no copyright infringement is intended or happening or even understood.
1: John, darkness my old friend
2: ah there we go we we have a we have a whoa he's a, a bearded avatar in my uh, window
1: he, he <laughs> is uh taken from true life and not at all a snapchat filter
2: uh oh that's
1: oh. Is, is there an evil beard snapchat filter uh i think so i think that's a snapchat filter okay
2: because <laughs> all the only snapchat filters i've ever seen is like you know friggin Dog ears and the hot dogs and crap like that.
1: Well, I have those on my camera roll too. Just so you yeah. know. <laughs>
2: okay. That's, that's, He's prepared that's, no yeah. matter what. That's that's right. good. That's good. I'm prepared
1: Pre- for all occasions.
2: <laughs> yes. Be prepared. The Boy Scout motto. Never right. thought it would apply to Snapchat.